Hello and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cadden. And today, I have my good buddy, Sam Pura, on the podcast. Sam, you may know from recording groups like Basement, The American Scene, The Story So Far, and a ton of others. Sam is an awesome dude and we really get into some not discussed topics. I'm going to just say we go pretty hard on this one. I really liked this conversation. Sam and I always get really real with each other when we're talking in private. And this time everybody gets to listen to what we kind of talk about when we're texting. So I am really psyched on that. Before we play this podcast, I do want to tell you about Jay-Z Microphones. In particular, their Black Hole series, the BH2 and the BH1S, which are the result of relentless improvement of technology spanning more than 30 years. The mic wows you with clarity and richness. They incorporate a gold drop capsule technology using this innovation. The capsule's diaphragm is lighter, therefore it moves much faster and delivers more clarity, precision, as well as reducing colorations and distortions. These handcrafted studio microphones are designed for producers and are already used by world-class producers like Rafa Sardina, Tom Russo, Mark Urselli, Sylvia Massey, Rob Chiarelli, and many others. Right now, they're offering a deal that's 50% off for Black Hole Series microphones. Visit jzmic.com blackhole. Uh, I also want to say, they mailed me one of these, and I've been totally blown away by the clarity of it, and I don't have to say that. I'm going to keep using it, and I'm going to keep reporting back to you over these next few episodes about what I think about it, but so far... This mic has a stunning clarity, and out of the 30 mics in my mic collection, I'm pretty blown away by what I'm hearing. So, without further ado, I want to remind you my new book, Processing Creativity, is out on audiobook and any other format. So, if you like this conversation, I suggest you pick that up because you'll like that too. And here's a quick commercial for my other podcast, and then we're going to get the fun started. Hello, my name is Jesse Cadden. I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great albums. In the past, I've been lucky enough to make great records with bands like The Cure, Animal Collective, The Misfits, and over a thousand others. I've written two books and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast. Atlantic has granted me unprecedented access to the artists, producers, managers, and A&R to discuss what goes into really making the great records they release. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm uh, like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. But first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. So you meet some normie out in the world and they know nothing about music. How do you tell them what you do? Man, that gets increasingly difficult, especially because everyone, if I tell them, I'm like, I'm a music producer, like I own and operate my own recording studio. They'll be like, oh yeah, my son has one in his bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, no, I actually like am dead serious. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, it gets a little bit more difficult. I usually just tell people that like my clients are like international clients who fly to my studio for weeks at a time. We make records. I like that. I like that. You know, there's there's one I used to always say is like in 2004, I was dating this girl and we first started dating. I should tell people I was a record producer. Like, oh, is he rich? And by the time we broke up in 2006, they're like, is he homeless? <laughs> yeah, <it's> so funny. <laughs> I'm going to ask you what you've been up to since we last spoke, but I think it's very obvious you have a, the number one 
uh, rock record this week with the story Thank so you. far, which is Thank you fucking much. awesome, which I'm going to just go out and give the full endorsement right now that it is the best pop punk record I've heard possibly in many years. I don't I know how many that. you really hit a bar of creativity that that genre lacks is too light a word. That genre fucking sucks now and you guys really breathed life into it. I appreciate that. Like every time I think about like the word pop punk, I just think of like backwards hat and pizza and how like <laughs> how degrading that is. You know what I mean? It's just like, no man, there's so much more sonic exploration and so much more like melody exploration and so much more like rhythmic exploration that can be like used in this, you know? An obvious like reference is, you know, when I heard Blink-182 self-titled, that was like the oh, first man, time that I was man. like, oh my God, every song sounds different. There's every part sounds different. There's depth, there's versatility. And like, I would consider that their best work of all time. And then everyone's like, no, nah, dude, Enema. And it's like, no, nah, man, I'm pretty sure that fucking like that song, Miss You, was like the shit that my barber would sing. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like when I was a kid, like that, everyone liked that song. It was all over MTV and shit. You know what I mean? Like more so than their fucking cheeky little pop punk stuff. So that's like, ideally, like what I would keep saying that to the guys when we were making this record is like, we got to like, there's more depth here. We can like think Third Eye Blind think Coachella like let's stop like thinking warp Tour you know like it's funny you mentioned Third Eye Blind because the funny thing is is like that is actually what keeps coming to me in the songwriting when I listen to it that's awesome I like when people would ask me like what is the new story like I would respond with, it's Third Eye Blink. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Okay, so you're thinking about that self-titled record. All right, I, Jerry Finn. Yeah, I know. You know, it really is that thing of like, do you subscribe to that Spotify playlist of all of his discography? Oh, I should. No, I, I actually have, haven't done that. I'll send Please it to you me. when we get off. It's like one of those things, like sometimes when I'm like, having to do the thing and I'm like pissed at the uncreative pop punk record that's in front of me like put that on for an hour or two and you're like this could be better you know it's like a funny thing that you mentioned this and I know this because for the listener you and I talk regularly and so like I know some things that the listener doesn't know but so you guys did not do a lot of pre-production whereas like that self-titled record is very famous for not being a pre-production record but it being a almost all written in the studio record. Talk to me about the balance of that on this record a little bit. That was basically how we made the record. It was like, literally, I tried to offer and create a scenario for us to do pre-pro, but it was basically like, no, these guys are touring. There's like very little time. They're doing all the pre-pro themselves. So like, we're just going to go into the studio and they'll have everything written and we'll just record those songs. And of course, it didn't go down like that at all. And it ended up being like, all right, we got to write a lot of shit in the studio. And or like, we need to take a lot of breaks where you guys will then have to come to the studio like weeks from now. And we'll just like, what idea do you have? Play it for me. And it'd be like some garage band track. And it's like, all right, let's dive down this and let's try to make this fucking sick today. You know what I mean? So like a lot of like on the spot fucking writing and creation lots of that you know it wasn't even like the crazy thing that I, I was thinking about the other day is like the last day i worked on the record we were completely copy and pasting like bridges like a bridge of a song to make it a chorus and then had to redo all the guitars and reamp the guitars to change the strumming pattern to match the new vocal pattern like we did crazy arrangement changes all the time huh a lot of producers really fucking hate that it's like one of those things like in this prop podcast is like if there's one thing that i think people consistently say is like either one they hate when the band's not prepared and two they hate writing in the studio yet it's kind of our jobs as producers to be like oh we should embrace that how do you feel about all that and how that goes down i absolutely love exploring and going down that rabbit hole with bands what i hate is when i'm put on a, a logistical time constraint that basically allows zero room for exploration. And therefore, if they don't have things planned out and things don't go according to plan, we're losing time, we're losing days, and that means we're going to have to start dropping things to make it happen in the time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If I'm presented with an open opportunity to explore, then I'm hella stoked to do that. You know what I mean? As opposed to like, that's bullshit. You guys should come in with your ideas. Instead, it's like, no, you can need to come in with the base of the vision and then we can go from there. You know what I mean? I'm happy to do that. I think it's great. The only time it becomes annoying is when it's that logistical time constraint, you know? Yes. And so you just mentioned the word vision. Most important word that I like mention all the time today. Okay. Is vision. Okay. What was some of the vision for this record and how do you get more vision for your records? 
like the initial vision for this record, like I flew up to Canada to start the record with the guys. Like we got off the plane and we were just like, Parker was like, dude, are you excited to like hear these demos? Like I want to show them to you. And I'm like, all right. So we like listened to them in the car and they were all just like fast pop punk songs. He was like, what do you think, man? It's pretty tight, right? And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Like, but immediately in my mind, I'm just thinking like, okay, like this is a start, but this is ultimately like we're doing what we've already done. If we're going to do what we've already done, we have to do it way better. It has to be the best at it. And or we just have to start kind of abandoning that and start like going to a new territory, you know? Ultimately, the initial vision was like faster pop punk songs. That's what we're going to do. As we started tracking that down and started doing it, it became difficult for Parker to write vocals to, uninspiring to. And I was just like, okay, this is the roadblock I was hoping we were going to come to. You know what I mean? Like now, like, let's start talking about what you guys actually naturally start doing. And let's start doing what naturally comes to you as opposed to forcibly writing things for a style or a genre or a thing like why do we have these rules around this right now you know what I mean like so that's where it ultimately became like well now that we're out of ideas what do we do next and that's when one of my favorite members of the band Ryan Torf the drummer that's when he started being like all right well I have like this demo on my garage band it's just like a keyboard and some drums it's like that's fucking sick show me it I want to hear it you know what I mean like mm-hmm. that's where I was like okay now we have like a good vision of where we can go like This is the mature direction. This is the natural direction. Like, this is where we need to start going down. You know what I mean? That song is called Upside Down. That's That's, the one on the record. That's my favorite one on the record, ironically. That's that's the turning point song. That's like when we ran out of ideas, that was the song that was like, what do you got? And Ryan was like, this is what I got. And that's like, Ryan played all the drums, all the guitars, all the bass on that. I think there was like a couple guitar overdubs from like their guitar players, Kevin and Will, but that's about it. And so that song is like purely Ryan's vision. What is your song, Ryan? Let's record that song. What is your idea? What do you envision here for this song? You know what I mean? There was no just like, oh, well, let's just try this. Instead, it was like, no, this is how this is supposed to go this is supposed to have this 12 string guitar here it's like great man so that's like the most important thing is having like an actual guide of where we're going you're talking about how this song was a turning point how much of the record is pre-turning point versus post-turning point so we cut a few songs from canada i think there was like two songs that we cut from canada and like a a working third one so track one proper dose i think that's one of the last which is one of my favorite songs in the record same that song was like the last heavy song that we recorded in canada and we did that after we did upside down so that was kind of like okay now we did upside down now we let's create more of like a melodic platform and a new heavy one that's what proper dose became proper dose was done in canada upside down was done in canada keep this up was done in canada and then i think there's one more that we did in canada but then the rest are all done at panda so talk to me about working in another studio like i think you and i are very similar that we like 99 percent of our work is done in our own studios but then we occasionally go to another one how did that feel with the process like talk to me about how that affected this record i'm totally down to go to another studio as long as it's like a cool destination scenario where like we can just work and like just dive into it we don't leave the property that's it like it's super cool like i'm totally into that but ultimately then we start getting into the sonic aspects of the rooms and the gear the actual technical logistical thing of like having things set up so smoothly here that then i have to start building things over there to have a a smooth work flow so like it's challenging obviously and it's always like less than ideal i had a good time in canada working in canada it was fun you know what i mean there were some sonic aspects that i like i wasn't happy with the drum sound couldn't get like a big enough room sound because it's like a small dead room and ultimately like the other thing that's interesting too is like because it's garth richardson's studio which shout out to garth because garth's the fucking bomb yeah i mean literally some of the best vibe records of all time garth's records were like a good influence where it's like dude how did they do that how did they get that and it's like well every single part is totally edited every single guitar chord is punched in and like tuned before you change into the next chord even that rage record or like the jesus lizard record um i think those things were a little bit less than that but probably aspects you know what i mean you know i remember like back in the like early 2000s gear sluts pro tools days like people really being 
pissed about like that Atreyu record, how Pro Tools it was and stuff like that. Like he was definitely one of those guys that was big on the edits before everybody got there. And a lot of the reason why too is because like Garth is more so a producer than the engineer. So then the engineering starts getting standardized. Do you know what I mean? So it's like we edit every hit, we prep every drum sample. We, it becomes like a template that he ultimately like oversees and makes sure it goes correctly. You know what I mean? And I find a lot of those records pleasing sonically. Like the Trapped record sounds unbelievable. Like, dude, it's really good, man. And the Chevelle record that he did, also the Beloved record, so good too. It's so funny. Both of those were mixed references for me for a long time. That's funny. So Beloved was J.R. McNeely. Yeah, like those mixes and those things, like those are like references of like, man, these are perfect records. I like that. I want to make perfect records like that. Other people are used to hearing more loose shit and stuff like that. Like I grew up in an era where when I heard those perfect records, I was like, how? Those are the records I want to make, you know? So anyways, the funny thing though is that ultimately like when I talked to Garth, he was like, that's funny that like you put a lot of emphasis on drum rooms. And I was like, interesting, what do you mean? And he's like, well, like anytime anyone's ever mixed our stuff, like Andy Wallace and shit, they just mute our rooms and just do reverbs and samples. <laughs> so he's like, I've always just made sure all my close mics and everything is like perfect. Like I give them enough like room to capture everything and like room to play, but like really like in my history, I've never seen them like pump room mics in my mixes. It's like interesting, you know? And so has that changed how you've been doing records at all? I mean, me, like, my room sound has always been a huge part of my, like, drum sound. You know what I mean? And, like, ultimately, like, when I got into making records, like, the goal was, like, I want to make the best drum sounds I've ever heard in my life. Great. I want to make the best guitar tones I've ever heard in my life. So, like, my drum room and everything is here is like real dialed for like a sound and also the fact that like we've already done all the story stuff here before there's a, a consistency in the drums that you want to have and maintain you know what I mean like part of their sound is my drum room you know it was a little challenging at times in mixes and stuff like that to get some of the ambience right on the on the Canada tracks that was like it worked out fine but what's funny is like like that song proper dose and shit the chorus are like drums that like the verses are like they're all done in Canada and then we redid the chorus because like we changed the arrangement so then the drums are at Panda and the chorus and then in the bridge they're at the warehouse at Panda when I gave Eric Valentine to mix there's like 72 drum tracks because it's like verse drums in Canada then like you know those are the first like 16 tracks plus like it's samples and stuff so that it's like 20 tracks you know what I mean then like there's 20 <laughs> tracks underneath it for just the choruses which are new drum sounds you know what I mean so like that session that I gave him was like 250 plus tracks dude like insane for like a relatively like simple song like it's the most insane complicated details behind the scenes so how would you feel if somebody handed you that to mix I would be a little overwhelmed there I'd be like what the fuck was this Eric was ultimately like really cool and he understood why we did everything that we did like he's like got it you guys had to change the arrangement before because you didn't get to do pre-pro got it interesting well it has a cool sonic benefit then you know that's what what always kind of was like kind of fun is like anytime they're like fuck i think we need to change this i was like sick let's do it we can get a total better drum tone for this part now that we can reference the drums like that we already had like we're gonna beat the drums and we're gonna have an even better sounding chorus and it's gonna add like more emotion and more intensity that's fucking sick let's do it you know what i mean like jumped at any opportunity to redo parts here because it was like it'll sound better great that's really right and you know it's the funny thing is like while we were doing construction we had that on the studio monitor so many times i never would have known i mean like obviously the warehouse saying like there's that drum sound obviously like it's a little bit bigger in the bridge, I guess it's that one. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it like collapses to mono, like and mono mics and shit like that. So yeah. I would never have known that the verse and chorus, and that's always the mark of a damn good mix is like when you can't even tell the things are that, it's just like, it feels good. The other thing that makes it easy too, there's not like a subjective like, well, how should I tune the snare? It's like, no, the snare needs to be tuned to this note because it's the key of the song. We used this snare. Let's find another snare that's going to sound better than this one and or that one. Tune it to the same note. Great. Like hit it. That sounds even better. Great. We're going to use that one, you know? as opposed to like like let's listen to the one we have and try to match that and so it's like no we just make it the note and make sure that the snare sounds good and it should sound great you know it's so funny because i've been really big on this thing of like everybody thought that once we all had laptops that we could record with every instrument coming with the laptop for free like garage band is or logic every record was gonna be like a flaming lips record where you can it's kitchen sink everything in the world will be on it and it's totally not the case because limitations make for great creativity and it's that funny thing it's like talking about the key of the song it's like yeah well you know what that limitation's a good fucking thing to have because then less options and we know exactly what it is can this snare do a note let's fucking do it that's what I've always found the best thing to do is to identify the box that you have to operate inside of and make sure that you do it that way you know like and like that it goes that it goes a lot of that way for me like when i'm doing mixes like if someone sends me a mix revision i have like a b and c as of volumes and a is like 1.5 db b is 3 db and c is 6 db you know what i mean so like if it doesn't work on a then let's try it on b 
Does it sound better there? No, then it, let's go wild and let's do that. Now we'll find the variable uh, area in between B and C because that's what sounded best. As opposed to just like, let me just turn this knob and try this. Well, no, I have it. It sounds good. Let me just increase it and or decrease it just a little bit, a little bit more or a lot more. And then that should solve it. Move on, you know? Totally. And I think that there's like a thing that young green people don't get is like, oh, well, you're, you know, if you have these parameters and you're not going to make creative, you can't have a template, you can't have this. It's like, mm, there's a lot of borders that work. Yeah, absolutely. When you first learn about like Chris Algae and be like, he never changes the settings on his outboard. How does that work? That doesn't make sense. And it's like, no, it does make sense because all it is is level and output and that's it. You can hit it totally different. You don't have to change the settings to hit them differently. And ultimately he has his own way of reaching his desired end result and it doesn't sound the same every single time even though he uses the same tools it's also just like so funny too because it's like the fucking gain knob and how much output you're fucking sending to a compressor is kind of everything especially like with the 1176s which he's like famous for those things only sound good at one certain gain maybe like two to three different gain points that like work for different sounds it's like and as he says he has a lot of them so he doesn't have to change the settings he just sends it to the one that's set the way he wants it fucking set and it's also like I said, like it's playing A, B, and C. Like, let's try compressor A. Let's try compressor B. Let's try compressor C. Oh, C and A both sounded best. I actually like them both. So let's just you molt this and let's just run two channels, one on A and one on C. Cool. Now let's move on. Like, how quick and easy was that just to get your template set up? And then you can start being crazy subjective and variable inside of your template and inside of your frame, you know? Love that. So let's go back a little bit while we're talking about vision still. The other day you were like talking about how you get the take, you get it in time, you get it in tune. I think a lot of people don't even hear what that is. Can you talk about like maybe what you've done to develop your vision for what the take should be. All of that is, is gut instinct. Vocals, for example. I always love this because it'll be like, where do you want to start? And they're like, let's start on the verse. It's like, all right, let's start on the verse. Like, let's, let's give me your first pass and see what you got. They sing the whole verse. And then I'm like, okay, let's try that again. And then they sing it all again, but then they stop halfway through. And then they're like, maybe we should split that up. And I'm like, yes, maybe we should. I was hoping that you were going to choose that option for yourself instead of me having to force that for you. So now let's focus on just the beginning. Great. Now we split this verse up in half. How about we just focus on the first words and then where you take that breath, how about you just stop and then we'll concentrate on that. And then from there, you fucking loop it, you fucking record, hell of takes. This is the thing that used to creep me out, but I think it's so fucking important now. Are you gonna tune your vocals? Do you want tuning on your vocals? Well then guess what? You should probably sing monitoring the auto-tune. So that way you can change your inflections and your delivery to make sure you get the smoothest take with the least amount of artifacts. That's the best way to do it. You're singing monitoring through auto-tune. You get the fucking take. I get it where I'm like, that one feels really good. That had good passion. That had good honesty. That felt awesome. Drop that down onto my playlist. I got maybe 10 fucking good vocals to listen to. Comp through them, solo them, make sure they're totally in tune on their own and in time. Then I build doubles from there and go all around that, you know? And also what I'll, what I'll do too, which is like really important for a lot of vocalists, if they can't get it to be in tune correctly, I'll fucking get the best take and get it in tune and then have them sing to the in tune take. You have no idea how much better that makes vocalists. Like, it's insane. They're just matching the tuning and they sound perfectly in tune, you know what I mean? So like, that's like a lot of what I did on the story record is like, all right, now that we got the take, let's do it again and see if we can get it even better. And we always could, you know, the more time you put into it, the better you're getting. You're not going to get the take on the first one. You're not maybe even going to get it in the first day. It's like, that's like expecting someone to be like, all right, I'm the, this is the first time I'm ever going to sing this on the mic. And this is going to be the take that I want to represent me for the rest of my life. It's probably not going to be. You're probably going to have to do it another day. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> might as well truck down today, get the best of it. And then if it sounds weird a few days from now, go ahead and punch it in because it's probably going to sound way fucking better today, you know? Alan Douch has always used to say this thing. He's like, there's nothing you can do in digital that you can't, that you couldn't do in the analog world. It just was about how much time you had to do it. But I'm like, mm, you know, getting the singer to sing to Melodyne, being able to write harmonies in Melodyne and then have people sing to them. Um, to me, that's the greatest advent of production yep. technology of the last decade, or it might even be more than a decade now that I've had Melodyne. Jesus Christ. I would be remiss for the audience if I didn't get you to talk more about singing through the tuning. Talk to me more about what that looks like so that people understand what that is. 
I'll just use I'll just use AutoTune EFX and I'll just have it set on the default mode and I'll make sure that I have the keys correct from there and I'll automate the key for every song or whatever and change them up and then ultimately it's like when you take it off it's going to sound a little out of tune but it should sound pretty fucking perfect you know what I mean like when you bypass it it's basically just part by part section by section singing through it monitoring it listening to it back singing on top of that again making it perfect like a lot of things that dudes will do is like they'll have inflections where they'll be like tonight but that doesn't work on autotune because it goes tonight like it does the stepping so that's where i'm like no man we got to just like split that into two and just be like tonight or something like that you know what i mean to make the actual shift sound right and in tune and natural like those are the things that like when you're tuning a dude after recording vocals you'll be like fuck i can't do anything about this so i'll just and like to be to like reach a point where you're like fuck i can't do anything about this that's the most demoralizing fucked up scenario and as a producer and engineer that's my job to make sure we never get to that point that we did it right and we got the take and we got the tuning and we got the inflections so that everyone in the room including me and the fucking talent says that sounds perfect i'm totally happy with that let's move on yeah you know it's funny to me because like i guess my version of that is that like i think the most important day is that like brutally force on that we have the time to have a day where I've already mixed the record and then we do revisions on it. It's so important to do vocal revisions like after fucking mixing it, <laughs> like, like small overdubs. Like, Well, I think it's even the thing that, like the metaphor I've been liking to use lately is that like you hear a demo in the practice space recorded on the iPhone or like a shitty garage band demo. That's like seeing two elephants a hundred feet down the road. And you're like, what the fuck is that shape? Each thing you get closer and closer. And when you have the mix, you're like standing in front of the elephant. You can like look at whether the fucking elephant has a little hair on it yeah that's a good point the clarity is only going to highlight any problems also just give you vision like literally the word vision it's like you're able to see more and you're able to like get what this could be more because you've heard a really good mix of the song and you're like is this emotionally feeling right do we have to do things to change this does this fall flat did we fuck up the key even like i just had that on a record of like now that we hear the mix this hearing how good the keys are on these other things we should have fucking done this and it took till then i've always been like well maybe this is just not as good a song on this record and it's like yeah i should have caught that but you know it takes hearing the record as a whole sometimes to fucking see these things totally i got another fun trick for you that i think uh you'll appreciate here so another thing that i did all over the record a lot of times like he'll sing these really like high parts which ultimately like at the end when you're done with it you're like okay maybe it sounds a little shrill and a little like thin because like we're up in such a high range how about Let's do a low octave version of this and like get it perfectly in tune, perfectly in time. You know what I mean? What I would do then is I would pitch up the song so that it was easier to sing to the low octave and then pitch down the song so it sounded deeper, thicker, and perfectly in tune. <laughs> and also then at that point, it doesn't sound like Parker Cannon just singing a low octave. It sounds like maybe someone else like i've gotten so many people who have hit me up and been like dude who's singing on this one part it's like dude that's parker <laughs> but it's like we used, we used very speed tricks to like do shit like that so like harmonies if he has a high harmony pitch the song down and have him sing the harmony to it so are you talking like you're just going in x form and you're like doing the very speed thing to it yep yep beetle shit dude Dude, that's really funny because that, that is like really funny because I could thinking of the very speed that is Beatles. That's fucking yeah, hilarious. exactly. Because like when I I remember listening to Come Together one time and I was just like, man, who was singing that low ass octave? Like that's so low, I can't even do that. And then I thought, oh, it's totally Paul, and it's totally just very sped down, and it sounds so sick that way. Like what a smart move, you know what I mean? So it's funny because like I think when you and I talk a lot of time, we're both like in a thing of like, we love technology, but we are also very rooted in like a lot of the classic recording things that a lot of people are like not wise to. And like, I think it's like our generation of that stuff. One of the things I know you embrace a lot that I don't is reamping. Talk to me about why that's a big thing of your process because like for me personally it's like the thing of like i'm kind of new this week i'm like i'm gonna end up starting to reamp run records like it just like hit me i'm like this is gonna be my new thing and i know that this is probably gonna be the thing i'm learning this year so talk to me about why reamping is such a big part of your process okay so this like guitars and guitar amps etc are my most important favorite thing of recording that's where i get wild and i like spend so much time on it basically your drums define your fucking of your record and all of like the vibe and energy right your low end has to your bass has to fucking play with the drums otherwise they don't hit together and you don't have this huge impact and the guitars are 
all of the ambience in all of the mid-range definition and like the vibe and tone of the record. That's where it all matters. You know what I mean? Like that's the meat right there because like the mid-range is the most important speaker. You know what I mean? From there, that's where as a guitar player, I'm like so attentive to detail that I want to hear every note. I want to hear every fucking picking pattern. I want to be able to have someone listen to my records and easily create tabs for everything. When I played Guitar Hero, you know what I mean? Like I wanted all my guitars to be so perfect that you could just Guitar Hero it out. You know what I mean? So eventually like it got to this point Ultimately, like the tuning and takes of the guitars started really mattering to me, right? You fucking, you know, record a band and you're done with it. And then they're like, shit, like a lot of it sounds out of tune. It's like, well, there's nothing we can do. We basically have to redo your guitars. You know what I mean? Like we have to redo your guitars and like put them through new amps and we have to do the whole fucking thing again. That's ultimately because we were trying to make a record fast and we were killing so many birds with one stone that are ultimately like so problematic when you think about it. You have to think about the guitar, like you have to think about the pick, the strings, the pickup, the guitar, the actual like strumming pattern, the actual performance of it. Then you need to think of the pedals that need to then drive which amplifier and or which amplifiers because lots of my favorite guitar tones that I've ever loved on records are blends of a heavy amp and a blend of a soft amp simultaneously. You know what I mean? I don't think I've done a record in the last decade where it's just one amp on a guitar tone. It's just not how I work. But also everyone is like two mics on a guitar amp. No, that's bullshit for me one mic on a guitar amp. I'm even further of that. Like, I don't even use anything but a 57. I might use my AEA as a room. So so this is like what, how it worked with the story, guys. So we basically, you want to make sure you get the right guitar, the right pickup, the right settings for the riff, you know? So basically it's like, all right, Will, play your riff. And it's like this power chord riff that has like a lot of like movement. And it's like, okay, it sounds kind of muddy on the Les Paul. Maybe let's try that on the SG. Great. That sounds hella good on the SG. It's really bitey and there's a lot of clarity. But now it's like a little too thin. Let's double that with the Telecaster that is going to like clean it up a little bit, but have like a little bit more bottom. And it's perfectly ever tuned, perfectly in tune. You make sure you get the exact same strumming pattern, the exact same thing. Edit the shit out of that. Make it perfect. Play it back. And I also... When I record these guitars, I usually don't monitor, I don't have the monitor an amp. And it's really annoying for them at first, but I'm like, trust me, we're just going to listen to the clean guitar, nothing. So you're literally talking about no sim, you're literally playing just pure what the guitar is doing. Yep. And so what type of DI are you using for this? Preferably the UTA DI, the Undertone Audio, uh, shout out to Eric Valentine. Preferably that DI, which is either in the MPEQ or the MPDI. That, that's my favorite sounding DI. It just sounds really good. It's really fucking awesome. The other one that I use all the time is the Avalon, just because it's convenient. I have the two control rooms here. So if I'm going to do uh, guitars for a record, I want to share the same DI so that there's no issue. You know what I mean? So that way I can bring it in between both rooms. So I'm probably just going to get another Avalon for this room and just have two Avalons in both rooms and just not use the UTA on DI. But I would prefer to use the UTA on DI. But that's a $3,000 versus a $600 piece of gear. And they we're talking about like a 1% of subjective like thing. I'm happy to use an Avalon DI instead. So you're listening to guitars totally clean. Totally clean, dude, which is so annoying for guitar players like they hate me for it you know what i mean you're saying this and i'm like i know like i'm probably gonna inevitably end up switching this because it seems like it's the smart thing to do like i don't know like so much of like how i want to produce a guitar is like hearing that i guess you, maybe you get used to how it should sound for the take and you hear the take better is what you're saying let's say like you know for like will playing in the story so far like his guitar needs to be hit with a lot of impact he's got to strum real hard he's got to make sure his fingers are fucking smooth on those frets and you don't hear any extra bullshit and like when you play through an Amp, you just all that stuff kind of gets covered up and you basically like when you take it off then you're like oh shit there's a lot of fucking junk inside of that so why don't i just remove the instagram filter and make sure that it's perfect so that when i put the instagram filter on it it's even better you know what i mean for like will it's like dude it needs to sound like consistent the guitar part needs to go and i want to hear it that way from the clean guitar di as opposed to like if you played it through an amp, it would sound like that. And then if you muted it and just you listen to the DI, it'd be like, like two different velocities, inconsistent bullshit, 
all that shit matters to me. You know what I mean? Especially if I want to stack multiple guitars and do quads and DI, like multiple guitars in the chorus and have like six of the same riff. Like each one has to be played perfectly. I want it to sound like a MIDI guitar. You know what I mean? Like when I play it back, I want it to literally look like it's MIDI notes. Like that's that's what I want. <laughs> you know, I want it to be perfect. You know, I don't want to hear any variation or any like in the guitar part. I want it to speak very clear and very loud to me. You know, and so at that point, then it becomes really easy to determine what you're going to start reamping with because you're like, all right, this is the SG. The SG always sounds hella good through my 5150, and this guitar needs to be big in these choruses. So let's start with this 5150. That's uh, fucking great. Now, I need to clean it up with something a little bit cleaner to give it some articulation. Let's try my Vox or my Orange, and then I reamp into both of those, you know? Mic choice is always 57, which is always on the robot, so I can move it and make sure that I am getting the right EQ curve before I hit my preamp. I've gone through moving to 57 on every fucking axis, and the only one I care about is left and right and or up and down. That's it. My guitars, I like them on axis. I don't like off-axis. I don't like it being pulled away from the grill. It sounds fancy to me the second I do that. I like it dead up front, right around the cone. And we're talking about maybe two inches of variable space that are a world of a difference that that's what the, the robot's for, you know? So funny. I'm right there with you. And then the one thing I have to add to that is I'm even on the thing for phase of single speaker cabs are my favorite thing in the fucking world, especially for cleans. I would love to do more single speaker cab scenario in here. Fuck it, whatever. I have a 212 Bogner and a fucking 412 Orange, and it sounds great, but I totally understand your theory because I've had that experience too, you know what I mean? Where I'm like... Cleans, it makes the biggest difference. I've used like a, a single Soldano speaker before, and I'm like, holy shit, like this sounds hell of like focus. This is awesome, you know? It's pretty true, this like weird rule of thumb that the smaller the tone sounds, the bigger it will translate to when you actually mic it up. Yeah, you know, I would love for someone smarter than me to explain that to me, why that is. I think it's because our ears are hearing like an entire big sound and then you're shoving it through a fucking PVC pipe 57. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. PVC pipe is dead on. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just like, of course it's going to sound a little weird, but if it's small and you put that in front of it, it can then sound bigger, you know? 57 on the big 412. Then I have my Bayer Dynamic M160 best ribbon mic, favorite ribbon mic. That sits dead center on the cone. I don't like it anywhere else other than dead center on the cone, right up on it. And that goes on like the cleaner amp. So like, so let's say in a chorus of a song, it's an SG, stereo SG left and right. That SG on the left is going out to a 5150 with a, a 57 on the orange. It's going out to a Vox going to a Bogner cab with the M160 on it. And then I have two microphones in my hallway outside of the room capturing the ambience of both amps playing simultaneously, right? And so then when I reamp that, number one most important thing, you gotta fucking print a 1K tone in Pro Tools, a little beep. So it goes beep into the amp before it records it. And that way you can look at it and you can align the phase and make sure that the timing is perfectly right between the two microphones. We do the thing of we shoot the white noise in and then move the mic with the headphones on with one of them out of phase until it cancels as good as it can cancel. Got it. That's smart as well, too. The deep thing that we have to talk about, why don't I just sum these microphones before they go to Pro Tools? Well, it's because I've had that option to do it. And in Canada, we had the console there and I did that and I tried it. And every single time I heard little tiny phase issues that were going to be made up if I actually just moved the two tracks in Pro Tools and then summed it. Here's another one for you with that. So I used to have a Brent Avril summing box. And, you know, I was so into committing, especially like when I still used to work for Steve Evans. Steve is like literally, like, like for an unmarried 50-year-old, he is the king of commitment. Literally wants everything that way. And I got into that. But then what I started to notice is then if I just did a stereo track of the two things, when I mix, there's no doubt in my mind there is that there is a humongous, humongous difference in that if you have two tracks of the separate amps, I don't know what the fuck it is. It will always sound bigger than if you sum it down. Absolutely. So basically, then at that point, so for a one left guitar, we have two mono tracks uh, that come into Pro Tools. We have our 57, our M160, and then our stereo room mic. Important to mention that it's stereo because it's panned hard left and hard right. And the two are panned hard left because it's just the left SG, right? Now the right SG does the exact same signal flow. So then you got two tracks panned hard right, and then the stereo track panned uh, left and right, right? So at this point, now I have six guitar tracks for a stereo SG in the chorus, right? Following me, I'll put S1 Imager on it, and I'll tilt it to the left. And I'll put S1 Imager on the, on the right guitar, and I'll tilt it to the right. So it's stereo is still stereo, but it's just basically like 150, you know what I mean? Like on the left and rights. So that way it has like a nice spread. And so then at that point, I'll get a nice blend of that. 
I'll make sure it's fucking cool. And then I'll sum that to a single stereo track and that's the guitar. That's pretty interesting. And I imagine it's like the funny thing of talking about the commitment. It's like commitment is great, but I imagine having that as an option in your sound is amazing. So that's where like, it can be annoying when we do reamp days. Cause it's just like, we're just looping a fucking chorus guitar for fucking four hours. And I'm like playing with tones, but like, that's what it takes, you know? And so like, let's talk about like that song proper dose in the chorus. There's like literally 12 stereo guitar tracks. So if we're talking about the 12 stereo guitar tracks, each of that stereo guitar track is six tracks inside of their minimum. Sometimes we did three amps, you know what I mean? So it would be three monos in a stereo being fucking, now we're at eight tracks for all each of these. So like if it's 12 tracks, we got basically how many tracks? Like 70 tracks, 72 plus <laughs> guitar tracks like of different amps and 50, like that were all summed down together. Damn. Insane, right? And that's where it's like, that sounds like overkill, but it's like, well, hey, we got a number one record, so was it overkill or was it the right decision, you know? I, I think there's this thing of, like, it's not overkill. But I know you and I talk about this all the time. It's like, the level of mediocre bullshit out here is because everybody is just doing this fucking standard thing. You gotta go to extremes if you want to do something exceptional. And you gotta be original. You can't just, like, rely on the same tools as everyone else, because that shit's bullshit, you know? I remember when I thought they were going, I'm so bad without it, what is it, the Soil and Dirt's the one before, the one with the face on the front? Yeah, yeah, that's the first record like when they started to sound like it then it was the guitars like it's the tack of the guitar that first song on the record and knowing that this is a band that's made a lot from the guitars it's like yeah come up with it, a fucking extreme plan to do it yeah exactly like and it's got to be a better guitar tone than last time we got to one up it somehow how you know there's a thing with my job at atlantic like making these documentaries is I've, I've come up with this theory that every album for a band after their first record is some sort of a reaction to what the record was before i think that there's like this thing of that there's really an A and B in it most of the time is it's let's do what we do better or let's make a big turn. You know, sometimes there's the variation of like, let's do what we do, but let's add this element. You know, an instrumental band might add a vocal for the first time. A band might do this. And that's an important thing. Like, I think people don't spend enough time thinking about that from record to record. I think the funny thing is like a 90 degree turn for your thing is like, I always think it's funny. Like when Chadwick fucking tweets, like the thing of like how people are still bitching about hundreds fucking sound change and everything. But it's like, you got to put a lot of effort when you're going to take that big a 90 degree turn. You're, you're either going to go all the way or go home. Go big or go home, bro. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you're saying, it's ultimately like, what is our vision for this record? Where, how are we going to do this? Like, you're just, you're, you're ultimately, again, just confirming how important vision is. You know what I mean? Like, and like, ultimately these bands start creating a new vision for the next record based upon the reaction to their last or their disappointment with last or the limitations or whatever. Like somehow you're like, how are we not going to make those mistakes again? You know? Yes. So let's get into some philosophical things that uh, we didn't get into on our last podcast. I think people might enjoy. Let's talk about life, dude. <laughs> yes. That's, well, actually, here, here, let's, let's do that one. I have, I, I have one. What's something outside of audio that you're really, really into that people probably don't know about? Growing weed. <laughs> oh yeah, is that your is that your thing right now? Oh god, I'm so into it right now, dude. I fucking went I felt so far down the rabbit hole of growing weed. Like I'm so into it. I found a lot of inspiration from planting a seed and watching it progress. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. I would love to get good at this. Me as a stoner, like I would love to curate some of the best weed I've ever smoked. You know what I mean? It's just like it's like me as a record fan. You know what I mean? Like I would like to make one of my favorite records of all time. Like I'm a stoner, I want to make some of my best weed I've ever smoked. You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm about, you know? I like that. You know, it's a funny thing here because like it's like basically getting decriminalized here. So, you know, there's this video last week of a guy literally using under the legal limit that you're allowed to have and that, but breaking it up to sell somebody on the hood of a cop car. Oh God. <laughs> so funny. It's just so funny. Cause it's like, it's like people are just starting to get that. Like now, like it's just the small fine to smoke weed on the street. And it's like, you don't have to go to court and everything. And it's like so funny watching that spreads for Brooklyn of people like starting to not give a fuck. It's funny. Like, you talk about this. It's like five years ago, no one would be on a podcast talking about growing weed. Yeah, absolutely. Because it would be like, oh, they're going to blow up my spot. I'm going to get in a bunch of trouble. Like, it's totally legal. Like, so many of my friends' parents email me and call me and ask me about like growing weed. And they like, I've gone to my friend's like dad's house and like fixed up his weed plants for him because he like, <laughs> he went, because he went to the club and bought a clone and was like, I'm going to try to grow weed. Like, I don't even smoke it, but I just want to grow it. I think it'd be fun. It's like, it is fun. It's hell of cool. Like, and it's legal. It's going to be so funny when like NPR grandmas and crazy cat ladies like that's the new thing of their gardening is gonna be dude, yeah yeah dude literally man like like my homie's mom like she grows weird and she's like she's older and she's just so into it she's like yeah i'm gonna start making like 
butter. I don't really like smoking it, but I like I think I'm gonna turn it into like coconut oil. It's like, hell yeah, do it up. Dude, is the C B D thing as insane out there as it is here right now? It, it was out, it was about insane like last year. It's kind of died down a little bit. But yeah, it was all the hype last year. Thankfully, it's kind of like gotten back to I fucking hate how weed culture has changed so like it's so sick how fast it's changed in my like lifetime of being a stoner. Like the thing that I always like to point out is that I was straight edge until I was like twenty one, man. Oh no shit. And so yeah, so I didn't smoke weed until I was like out of high school and out of college and stuff. That was like kind of my own promise to myself was I was like, my parents and everyone think I'm a fuck up. So I'm just like going to be a good dude and make sure like I don't fucking like get involved with the wrong things or anything. And so I always like thought like weed was going to be like some detrimental fucking drug that was like going to make me homeless and I'd be living on the street <laughs> fucking, you know, scratching my neck. And then I smoked it and I was just like, holy shit, if I had been smoking weed before this, I think I would have been more in tune and more like stoked about fucking school and et cetera. Like it just, it changed my life and it was so positive. You know what I mean? So like I fucking love smoking weed. I can't believe the THC counts that are happening now. I can't believe all the fucking edibles and bullshit. I can't believe dab culture. Like that <laughs> shit is like really should have never left just flour. You know what I mean? Like yeah, flour is yeah. fucking awesome. But yeah, it's like, it's advancing so much that it's just like you have fucking lip bullshit like that. And like a homie of mine was like, dude, I got your dog a CBD treat. It's like, why does my dog need CBD? <laughs> like, Did you get your dog after or before 4th of July? I got him before 4th of July, actually. Why does your dog need a CBD treat? It's yeah, for, exactly. It's fucking fire of July. Like, 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 like our dog, it's like the fucking thing. It's like, you know, she says they're fucking so, so stoned out of her brain. And it's like, it's That's so much awesome. better than what it, what she is when she hears a firework. Cause like, you know, in Brooklyn, 4th of July basically starts about three weeks early that you hear fireworks every fucking night. There's a positive reason for it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like I just need to feed my dog it because it exists and it's legal. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't need to eat it unless he needs to eat it. You know? Like, so funny. But yeah, I fucking, I love weed. Weed's awesome. It's always been like legal in my book because, you know, uh, when I started smoking weed, I was a medical patient. There's nothing to hide. The culture always, always changed around it. Like I've never been ashamed to be the dude that smokes weed and makes my records all day. Like that's just what I do. There's nothing wrong with it. It's completely fucking legal. That's rad. Okay, what do people get wrong about you? Everyone thinks I'm an asshole. <laughs> Sam, you're an asshole. Yeah, everyone thinks I'm a fucking asshole. Have I ever told you about my, my, my... I have this thing called asshole theory. Have I ever told you this? No, I'm ready for it. So the asshole is the person all your friends just think is funny or intense or like too serious when it's your friend. But when you're not friends with that person, then they get called an asshole. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm really polarizing in that way. And I have a lot of friends that are like a lot of people that I was friends with where I was like, if I'm not going to be friends with this person anymore, it's going to be like bad news. Like we'll hate each other. Like there's so many personality types like that. Chad from 100th is a good one. Like I love Chad from 100th. I think he's the fucking coolest dude yeah, ever. Yeah, I love that guy. And if I wasn't cool with Chad, it would suck to not be cool with Chad because that fool would hate me. Like that type of vibe. Like I'm definitely like perceived as that way because I kind of that way like i'm really like you either get me or you don't get me and if you don't get me you're like fuck that dude that dude sucks you know uh, I, I am totally with you on that how about what happens when you're making a record and says somebody says nobody will hear that oh god <laughs> it's the most fucking offensive shit ever it's what happened i was working on this record recently and this is what I hate. It's one of those like, you know, keyboard part. It's really meant to just be like super low. Like, you mean almost muted? Like, why would we even do this then? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of that? Didn't you spend time recording this and getting the sound? Don't you want it to be heard? Like, what is the point? I don't hear the emotional benefit and or like depth of the song from turning this down. I actually enjoy it being loud. You know what I mean? So like anything like that, people are like, oh, no one's like, you know, turn that down, blah, blah, blah. It's like, is it why do it? You know what I mean? Like everything I record, I put so much time into it's meant to be heard it's meant to be audible i'm with you on that one too how about what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer lately oh man fucking being able to watch like tom Ward algae and being able to watch eric valentine was fucking amazing and I'm also sure. like like getting to hang out with like garth and stuff like that like it's really validating because like i hell look up to these people and i think that they're just going to be like on a total different level than me and really i find out they're just a little bit more experienced than me and we're all just fucking normal dudes you know what i mean like it's very like oh sick like i could do that like it's very like reassuring and confidence building you know what I mean I would say the best thing that I like learned from watching Eric is like what's the difference between Eric Valentine and everyone else yes I'm curious it's the fact that this is this is my favorite story to tell people when I went down there to do like mixed revisions with him it was just like all right hey man like is it cool if I come down like and we just fucking hammer out like final revisions together like once we're like near the finish line I just like want to hang out be best friends like and he's like yeah totally like come down and it's his studio is at his house now so it was like so nice of him to just like let me hang out at his house it was 
like, all right, where do we start? Let's start with that song out of it, which we're doing the new mix for. It's like, all right, let's just start with this because like we, we got to fucking like nail this one. And from there, we can fucking nail everything else. So first things first, let's get more ambience on the snare drum. Like let's pump those room mics or something. It still sounds just a little too close mic'd. And again, that's Canada tracks. So what options does he have? You know what I mean? So literally this dude went down the rabbit hole and I believe he spent about three hours on this dude. He would do shit like open up the room mics, change the volume. It's really important to mention that like I gave him our sessions. So he was working from our sessions and just started going from there. So that way, like we already had like levels and stems, everything set up, like, you know, bass bus, like didn't levels didn't change shit like that. You know what I mean? So like he was so respectful to like the main static mix that I had already dialed. You know what I mean? So it's like, he's like, all right, let's try to like turn up a room mic and he plays with that. And it's like, nah, that's going to be harsh in this section because like the, uh, the symbols get nasty, like in this area, hmm, let's try something else. And so he just like is going through and trying to like change, you know, facing of tracks, like delaying room mics and being like, nah, that's not right. And then he like, is like, let's try like this ambient sample that you have. Like, let's try to pull that up. No, that's not helping. That's not right. And like three hours later, what he did dude was he automated a three DB five K boost, the room subgroup around the snare drum. So every time the snare drum hit, he just was like EQ boost, EQ boost, EQ, and just went through and copy and pasted it real quick. And that was it. Three hours later, that was it. He could have just been like, sure, I turned up the room mic, done. No, man, that dude made sure that he made the right choice. He didn't do anything that was going to harm or fuck up the balance or fuck up the tonality. He was going to accomplish that the right way. So like every revision we did, he would spend like an hour to like 30 minutes to like three hours on, you know what I mean? And we're talking like hundreds of revisions, dude. Like, so like he sat there for 16 hours straight, never took a break, never lost focus, never got fucking frustrated, was always super nice. I probably was annoying the shit out of him, asking him questions all the time and or just like chatting with him. But he was like so nice, so accommodating. And ultimately like he truly cared about the source material and the mixes. Like I've never seen anyone care more than him, you know? That's fucking crazy. And that's re really interesting to hear. I do often think that the saying I've been saying lately is I think a lot of records lose 10% of their goodness in the revisions. As producers, we can't be mad about revisions because it's people trying to be happy with their work. But I think some of, the, some of the thing is, is like one, they're bad decisions made from poor monitoring or bad objectivity. And then two, I even like to point the finger at myself. I think sometimes it's that exact thing is that like, it's like, oh, you want more room mic? And I try two things and I'm like, this kind of sucks, but this is what they want. And they're like, it's great. And I'm like, no, this could be better. And then it's like, uh, I'm busy. I can't devote fucking three hours to it. And really, I should stay an extra three hours and devote the time to it. And that was like what was fun about it at the end of the day. It's very like, oh, I could do that. It's not like, oh, shit, I need to buy this piece of gear in order to accomplish the mix that he did. Like, he didn't do anything like that. Instead, he did like complete like, like I'll use Fab Filter to boost the EQ in this section. And or like I'm using like I'm automating this reverb up. Like it was all like, oh, shit, like I could do that. But like I wouldn't have done that because I'm not as experienced as him. And I'm also like not going down the rabbit hole as far as that motherfucker did. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that's the lesson you learn if you're any good at analysis. And this is that it's usually not going to be the gear great and all that, but it's learning. It's learning to do the right thing at the right time. It's learning all those little things of like when the tool works best and which tool to choose for each thing. A revision is like, can we uh, get the shaker and one shot down during the guitar solo? And his response is like automated them down 1.8 DB. <laughs> like Just wow. like the most, Hey, bass up a little bit in general. Like we just want a little bit more poke and string definition turned up 1.2 DB of presence on this EQ. Like, great, perfect. You know what I mean? Like, real smart changes. Like, nice guy. Like, boosted 180 hertz on verse guitars. Like, great, perfect. <laughs> wow. Like, just like the most, like, tiny fucking things that just make a world of a fucking difference, you know? That's fucking rad. So we were getting into equipment discussion. Do you have any philosophy about the equipment you buy? Where are your feelings on like where you've been at with like buying equipment lately and with some thoughts? I mean, ultimately, I don't want to be in debt anymore because I'm a fucking responsible no, adult. I'm right there with you. Like I care much more about not having debt than I care about. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm there now, but ultimately still at the same time, like I want to one up my records and always make things better. So it's like anytime I make a record, I always kind of try to get if I'm going to make like a full length for a label, I always try to like get myself like a present that is going to be like kind of the theme of the record. So like 
for the hundredth record, it was like, all right, we're going to get these Evertunes done and I'm going to get a new drum set and we're going to get like big drums and it's going to be fucking sick. And so like, that was like a big part of the record. And then with story, it was like, now I got the Evertunes, like I got everything dialed. Like I know the fucking signal flow that I just worked on with hundredth. Like I'm ready to go. Like, let's just fucking make this. And like now, like I'm about to do like a new record with this band and I'm like, yo, I, I need to get like a Fender Deluxe Reverb. That's going to be like the theme of the record is like Fender Deluxe Reverb. So like, I always try to like get something cool, but ultimately I want it to make each record different and I want it to like make my workflow even better. Yeah. I'm like obsessed with the workflow thing right now since I'm building a new studio and like, I think Alan Dow just like told me like the thing like one time he's like, uh, get your wiring right the first time because you're never going to fix it. You're never going to fix it. I have a little too many lines, which is kind of cool, I guess. Like I have a little too many options between some of my rooms with my lines. That's nice. Now I actually really am trying to focus on having my drums always set up, my guitars and my bass and my vocals always set up in my like the control room that I'm actually in right now. This is like the production room where I have like my MIDI keyboards all set up. I have an electric drum kit set up ready to go. That's something I got to I got to get that electric drum kit going. Yeah, man. Yeah, we could we could dive into that here in a second. And then I have like a drum set set up in our second live room that like will everything will just be ready to go. You know what I mean? So like for example, this record that I'm about to do and like for the next few months, fans just going to walk in, they're going to hang out in the east room for fucking 2 weeks and they're just going to jam every day and record in the computer and then we're going to fucking like work on the songs and then ultimately once that's done, we'll go into the other studio and start making the record, you know? When we're talking about the right way to make records, it's like, that's the right way to make a record is like when people are like, eight weeks, it's like, yeah, and for two of them, I hope no one ever hears a single note of it unless it's like the thing of that, like, we got something so good on the track that it fucking, uh, you know, it can't be replicated because we nailed it that bad in the demo or that well in the demo. Absolutely, because we were like, we're so dialed during the demo, you know, like we had a, we had the vibe going so well. So you just said we can get into the electric drum. Talk to me about the electric drum. Yes. Big thing, big importance. Something like with story, what do I like regret with story? That we didn't have enough pre-pro time and that ultimately we had to make a lot of arrangement changes which required us to redo drums. Now, the benefit is we actually had the time to do that and there was a tonal benefit to doing so, but usually that's never, you never have those options or luxuries. So therefore, you want to make sure that you get your arrangement and everything dialed before you start making, before you start recording your drums, right? And so basically like what always happens every single time is you'll start to determine you you'll record drums and then you'll be like all right great let's put guitars on here and then let's put vocals and then you realize that there's all these eighth note sixteenth note flans where no one is playing together because they're all kind of playing different things instead of following one thing that's when like it's like if you record all the di guitars and then do all of your midi drums and like a scratch vocal you can change the kick patterns you can change everything to make sure everyone is supporting the vocal and then you can record your drums so like that's the advantage of having an electronic drum kit is like we can just like record have the drummer play a song great now let's start recording in your DI guitars got it your kick pattern should actually be this cool that sounds good to you awesome now let's move on to the chorus great that totally works fine cool we're done with the main like DI guitar it's ever tuned it's ready to go we'll reamp that or we'll do- add doubles or whatever now let's add the bass let's add a scratch vocal we're good to go like now let's record the drums for that song and reamp the guitars that's the right way to do it and yeah uh, every time I've done it that way I'm like way way happier yep how about what's the best piece of gear you are into that's under $200 Ooh, so one of my favorite pieces is the micro limiter. I don't think I know. Is this the, not the MXR pedal? No, this is the Alesis micro limiter. You can find them online for like 40 bucks still. And they're so good. They're so aggressive. What's really funny is um, like, I love that compressor. I, th- I love using it on room mics. I love like using it on keyboards, like backup vocals. Like it's just hella fun to smash it with it. It's like hella dirty and it's just so aggressive. It's awesome. Like, have you ever used a TG compressor or a Compex compressor? Oh yeah, yeah, both of them actually. Those ones like explode. You know what I mean? Like they actually like like when you turn them on, they're like <laughs> like as opposed to like sounding like they're sucking down and like compressing. You know? So that's what the Alesis does too. The micro limiter. It's fucking crazy. And it's really funny because I love that uh, compressor. And one day I was like learning about Mac DeMarco shit. And it turns out he uses that on his entire mix bus. Is the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no wonder I love how like his shit sounds. Cause it sounds like so dirty, but clean, but like really glossy. It's got a great like sound. It's like, oh yeah, it's just the $40 micro limiter on the mix bus. No wonder. That's awesome. You know, what's funny too, is like, as I always remember like that and the Daft Punk compressor, the, uh, yeah, the 3630, like everybody be like, well, they make everything sound worse once you just pass signal through it. It's true. But that could, 
compressor, the things that they do, nothing else does. And we have one of those 3630s, and it's fucking insane. That's Daft Punk is like has some of the coolest compression sound. It's like so glossy and so heavy, you know? Yeah, it's it's fucking crazy. Awesome. So then, how about tell me about a book or a documentary or something that's had a big effect on you lately? Ooh, that's a good one. I wish the Mr. Rogers documentary was a little bit better. It's really good. The only issue is that like all those stories that they tell are like the most like it's just like if you read his Wikipedia, that's like what it is, you know, with like video behind it. So it's fine, but like I mean, Mr. Rogers is like a huge inspiration for me and always has been. Like just the ability to like communicate effectively be a fucking nice guy and like actually just like make a count like that's what's up i think i've told said this before but one of my favorite documentaries that like is super inspiring is the senna documentary have you ever seen that the senna no i don't think i have it's s-e-n-n-a it's about this formula one uh race car driver dude it's unbelievable you have to see it like that dude is like the definition of like go out there and give it 110 percent every time and you win you know what i mean i i am dying to see this now yeah it's fucking awesome dude it's super inspiring i'm gonna give you the last question which is what's what's something you believe that everyone else thinks you're crazy to think that oh man just the confidence and the self-awareness I have in myself. Lots of people, you know, they'll ask me like my opinion of what, what I think that they should do. And I'll be like, no, you don't want to work with this guy. He's not going to be best friends with you. You don't want to do this. Like, what you want to do is you want to have me actually do this and be your best friend. And they're just like, of course, you're just going to suggest yourself. But literally, like, I'm suggesting myself because I know that there's no one else better. You know what I mean? So uh-huh, like, uh-huh. yeah, like that confidence, that like determination is super turn off for a lot of people. Like, I remember like when I was making the story record, like at the end of like working with like tomboard algae and stuff like that like before we even worked with valentine i was just like wow like this is a real weird spot to be in because like ultimately i know like in my heart like i'm one of the best producers in this genre and like it's gonna take a very long time for this record to even come out for people to validate that and or maybe i might not even be involved or the record might not even come out and that all this effort will not even be validated you know what i mean so it's like it was like a very like i knew we could make this count and i knew it could be special and i knew that there was no one better than me to be the dude that was going to help rein this in. You know what I mean? That type of attitude is like problematic and a turnoff for a lot of people. It's strange. You know, it's like funny like when you're saying this and you know, you and I get into like psych things sometimes since we're both with people who uh, do that for a living. And it's like, do you think that is just like that it offends people's own insecurity? Like what is it that like makes people so turned off by that? I don't know because I actually am really turned on by people who are that way. Like I'm really inspired by people who are super self-aware. Like when people talk like about how much they hate Kanye, like I hate Kanye for a lot of his like stupid shit, obviously. But like ultimately the coolest thing about Kanye West is he accomplishes his goals. He does it right. You know what I mean? Like, and that dude goes out and he kills it. And like, we went to this bar that's by the studio here that my friend Manit owns. He actually, I grew up playing ice hockey with him. He was the goalie of the team. We ran into him there. And like, I was like with a bunch of like the Panda friends and we were just like walking in actually to like have a drink and celebrate being number one. Cheers. Uh, So, but uh, that dude was like, he was there and he was like, and he's like, dude, you guys, this motherfucker was such a savage when he played. Like this dude, like wouldn't take shit from anyone. And like this fool fucking killed it like each game. And it's like, like, I, I think back to like playing ice hockey and like that literally like created a lot of my attitude. Like I was a defenseman. I was a guy who was like, no, man, like I'm not going to blow it. If I blow it, that means this guy's going to get a shot on goal and I blew it. So I have to fucking be the one who's going to fucking take this dude out and or fucking catch up and play this right. And I have to do this every time like and be respectful. You know what I mean? Like I got to I got to have my team like be able to depend on me. Like I was a captain of my team and shit like that. I always played with this like kill people attitude. Like I want to be the best dude on the team. I want our team to win. And like when I make these records, I'm like, all right, I want us to shoot for the moon. Let's fucking think about a Grammy. Let's think about being number one. Like, and I just sound so delusional to 90% of the people sometimes. They're like, okay, yeah, dude. All right. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, let's do this. And it's funny because like when people don't get the thing that like if you don't shoot for farther, because b- most things in life, you're going to come up at least 10% short of what you aimed for just because that's life and hard things are hard. So like shooting for further, like when you're just shooting for like, oh, I want to make $100,000 a year, you're probably going to have a shitty career. And it's like, you got to, you got to aim for farther than that. Yeah. You got to aim for billions and then maybe you'll come up with a few million and you'll be stoked. And that's the perfect way to end that podcast. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, another, another funny like story to tell you that like relates to all this too, is like, I was fortunate early in life to have my Little West story happen to me. You know the story, right? I do know the Little West story, yes. I'll give the explain like I'm five story of this. So ultimately, I was a huge West Borland fan, huge fan, would read about him in Guitar World, etc. 
he did an interview where basically they asked if like kids come to the shows and like dress up like him. And he was like, yeah, one time I brought some kid up on stage and I like gave him my guitar and he like just totally froze and freaked out. And I was like, fuck that. That dude sounds like a pussy. Like if that happened to me, I would fucking play guitar and I would kill it, you know? And so I had the irrational delusional idea of dressing up as West Borland, going to the show and knowing what practicing what song I was going to play when he saw me and when he was when he pulls me up on stage. And all of that literally happened. He saw me. I got pulled up on stage. He gave me his guitar. I played the song and I jammed with the band and I went to high school the next Monday and everyone was like, was that you that was on stage with Limp Bizkit last night? I was like, yeah, that was me. Like, and I had, I had been telling people, I was like, I'm going to get on stage. I'm going to do this. Like I, it was, and they're like, yeah, okay, dude. Okay. And I fucking did it, man. I was 16 when that happened. And that was just like, great. You want it? Go get it. You got to figure out point A to point B and it's completely fucking possible let's do this. You know what I mean? Like, so every time I make a record and shit, I just, I'm like, great, we have the potential to make this the best record possible. Like, let's just fucking do it. Let's go all the way. Let's do this. Like it may seem delusional to other people, but I know that that's the only way to accomplish it is actually just believe in yourself, figure out the variables of how to actually make it successful and fucking go for it. Yeah. And you know, it's a funny thing though, is like, this is the origin story for a lot of people who do things is like you, like, I remember reading this when I was researching the creativity book of that, like, you have incidents where you like see something and you actualize it and everybody thought it was out of reach. And like, you know, it was like, even if I, like, you know, like I dated a girl in high school who was really, really famous. And like, it was even the same thing for her. It's like at six years old, it's like, she's like, I'm going to be a movie star. Then she literally goes to her first audition and that's what emboldened her. And that's why she has a career 25 years later. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that that's like a big thing is that like, when you see that stuff can happen, you keep dreaming for it. I think like sadly like a lot of people don't have those moments but you and you don't know like how do you teach a kid to do that i think like that book the secret for example uh -huh. is like that's like ultimately like what it's trying to say but yes. it like is is it's instead fluffing it up and hyping it up and adding a bunch of bullshit around it but yes, like really totally like right. there is total truth to like the basis of like if you want it you can get it if you see it and you believe it, you can do it. If you build it, they will come. You know, like all those like hell of lame sayings that you've heard throughout your entire life, they're so fucking true. You know what I mean? Like stay true to yourself, make art from your heart. You know what I mean? Like focus on like the you of now and like focus on making the best day like that you could possibly do today. You know, or were you the best Jesse Cannon that you could possibly be today? If not, you have tomorrow to do that. You know, it's totally true. It's just sadly that book is all written in fucking pseudo A bunch of fucking bullshit <laughs> in grifter woo-woo talk instead of it being like yeah. the truth that it actually is yeah exactly a bunch of fucking gibberish foo-foo if you enjoyed this episode please remember the golden rule of the internet that if you enjoy something you got for free please tweet facebook share or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.